Let's pray. Lord, this is what you've called us to do. Lord Jesus, you are the master of the church, the Lord of the church, the owner of the church. And you have commanded us to gather, to speak of you, to sing of you, to proclaim your excellencies, to preach your word. And Lord, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what you have to say. Lord, give us ears to hear. Grant me clarity so that you, um, what is heard is you. Uh, what is heard is your words, because you've left them for us in the scriptures, and we praise you for that. Um, Lord, we, we pray that we would, uh, you, we pray, Spirit, that you would empower us as a people, empower us to listen, empower me to speak clearly, um, empower us as a people who bear your name. Lord, we bear your name as we gather together, and so may you be honored as we dedicate time in your word now. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you can stand with me for the reading of God's Word uh, from Matthew 21. Uh, Matthew 21. Now, uh, I'm going to read verses 33 through 46. I'm going to skip verse 44. Why? Well, as I've mentioned many times uh, from uh, this pulpit, uh, we are blessed to have in God's providence many uh, ancient manuscripts and versions which record uh, the Scriptures and we can look and we can compare them and we can say, well, this is most likely original and this is not. Verse 44, uh, after looking at the evidence this week, is most likely not part of the original text of Matthew. But it is something that Jesus said. You can find that in Luke 20, verse 18. So Jesus said what is said in verse 44. It's just that Matthew probably didn't record that. So I'm going to skip it this morning. If you want more information about that or want to discuss that more, please come and see me after. But let's go ahead and read Matthew 21, verse 33 through 46. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the, reason, when the season for fruit drew near he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, I don't know uh, if all of you have read or listened to or watched uh, the Lord of the Rings. 
Um, I, I must say it's, um, it's been about two years and I haven't once used a Lord of the Rings analogy, which is pretty good. Um, but here comes one. All right. So uh, in Lord of the Rings, uh, we understand that uh, part of the a main part of the plot is that there is a king that is supposed to come back and sit on the throne of this kingdom called Gondor. Now, you don't need to read Lord of the Rings. You, uh, I, I think you should, but um, uh, you don't need to to understand the reality awaiting for a returning king. And so what happens is the, 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 kings, the kingly line is broken. So what happens to the kingdom of Gondor in the meantime? Well, they need a steward, and a steward is appointed. A steward uh, essentially becomes... Uh, uh, stands in for the king while he's gone. And so there's a line of stewards. So one steward is on the throne and managing the kingdom, and then he dies and he passes it on to his son, and so on and so forth, until we get to the time that is happening in Lord of the Rings, and the steward of Gondor is a guy named Denethor. And Denethor, as time has passed, and as he's been the steward of the kingdom, uh, he has effectively become the ruler of Gondor to the extent that when the true king comes back, uh, he is unwilling to recognize said king uh, because he says to the wise wizard Gandalf, the rule of Gondor is mine and no others. And that is an interesting picture for what we actually see in Matthew 21, the original form of that whole story in a sense. It's, a, it's similar to what we see in Matthew today as Jesus addresses and continues to address the chief priests and the elders of the people. Remember the chief priests, those are the guys in charge of the temple complex in Israel. The elders of the people are the lay leaders of Israel. They are the stewards. They are the stewards of Israel. They are the stewards of the kingdom of God and the kingdom purposes that God has been working out through Israel and through his covenants with Israel. Now, let's review a little bit um, as we walk into this text this morning. You remember that Jesus was walking into Jerusalem and he cursed a fig tree a couple weeks ago. And we said that that fig tree represented that generation of Israel, that wicked and adulterous generation of Israel. Uh, it has all leaf but no fruit. He goes into the temple and immediately he's confronted uh, in his public teaching of the crowds. He's confronted by the chief priests and the scribes. Uh, he's confronted by the chief priests and the elders of the people, but asking, by what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus doesn't really answer them. He retains his authority, and he also exposes them as frauds, fraudulent authorities. But Jesus doesn't just stop there. As we saw last week, he goes right into this parable of two sons, one uh, where a father asks his son, go work in the vineyard. Remember, we said fig trees and vineyards are often paired uh, as an imagery for, for Israel in the Old Testament. And so we've got this, this imagery of the father send, um, asking um, two sons, two children, go work in the vineyard. The first says, no, I'm not going to. I don't, I'm not willing. But later he goes. And the second says, yeah, I'm going to go, sir. I'm going to go, master. I'm going to go, Lord. But he doesn't. And Jesus says, well, you, scribes and Pharisees, you're like the second son. You say nice things. It sounds all good, but you're not actually obedient. Whereas the first son, which is represented by... Um, Tax collectors and prostitutes, they are doing the will of God. They listened to the message of John the Baptist and they repented. And what we have this morning is Jesus continuing right on the heels of what he just said. He's continuing to talk to the chief priests and the elders of the people. You will notice Jesus is talking in verse 32 
And there is a new quote in verse 33. So there is no break. Jesus is still talking. It's the same discussion. So you don't want to segment what we're looking at today um, from the rest of this discussion. He is in dialogue with the chief priests and the elders of the people. The crowds, the Jerusalem crowds in the temple are off to the side. Uh, They're uh, observing this interchange. So they're a secondary audience, but he's still talking. And really what Jesus is going to do now in this parable this week is he is going to address the leadership and what's going to happen to them. He's already exposed them as frauds. He's already exposed them as not having repentance. He's already exposed them as saying, hey, look, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they're going ahead of you towards the kingdom of God, toward the future kingdom. They're walking ahead of you. You guys are stock still stuck and will not enter unless you repent. So now the question is, well, what's going to happen to this leadership? What's going to go on with them? And really that gets addressed not only by this parable this week, but it is addressed in this parable. But we also need to think about the audience of the book of Matthew. So Jesus is talking to the chief priests and the elders of the people, and he's talking to the crowds secondarily that are there in the temple. But what about Matthew's audience? Remember, Matthew's audience is Jewish Christians, uh, those who are probably in Palestine, in and around Palestine. Uh, They have committed to following Jesus as king, and yet there's questions and there's friction. Because they have friction with their friends, family, and neighbors who do not, their Jewish friends, family, neighbors, who are not following Jesus as the Messiah. And so that creates friction. And it creates what's going to be increasingly a divide. Are you going to side with Jesus and the church, or are you going to side with the temple? That is the question. And so what this text is doing, what Matthew is doing with this text, is he is proving, he is proving to his Jewish audience, yes, Jesus is the king, And here's what the king had to say about this leadership, which is still in power uh, for Matthew's original audience. And here's what he had to say about the kingdom. And here's what he had to say about the temple. He is talking about all of those things for the benefit of his audience to do what? So that they express their loyalty, their partnership with Jesus' church and not with an apostate Israel. And so that is the big idea for this text this morning as we look at it, this parable and the the follow-up, partner with the church as the people who have current stewardship of God's kingdom. Partner with the church as the people who have current stewardship of God's kingdom. The bulk of our time will be spent in the parable from verses 33 through 43. And the main idea of that section and what we see in that section and what Matthew is relaying to his audience through the words of Jesus is this, the Father has transferred stewardship authority of his kingdom to the son's new covenant temple assembly. That's the fancy name for the church. The father has transferred stewardship of his kingdom to the son's new covenant temple assembly. So let's go ahead and start looking in on this in verse 33. Here, another parable. So Jesus is talking he says, there's another parable. So he just said a parable with the parable with the two kids, the, 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 the father sending the two kids to go work in the vineyard. He just said that parable. Here's another one. Here's another one. Here, another parable. There was a master of a house, a landowner, a landowner. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now with that setup there, Jesus is using language that would have been familiar to his audience and would have perked up their ears. Like, hey, that sounds familiar. 
That sounds familiar. Because in the Old Testament, often, and I kind of indicated this when we were talking about the fig tree, uh, there is an indication uh, when we're talking about Israel and its health and its security, often the imagery of vines or vineyards and or fig trees is evoked. So we already talked about the fig tree side of things. Now we're talking about the vineyard side of things, okay? And this happens multiple times in the Old Testament. But the specific language that Jesus is using here links us back to one particular Old Testament text, and that is the text of Isaiah 5. So go ahead and turn back to Isaiah 5. The reason we're going to turn back there is uh, you will see the similarity of language to what Jesus is using here. He's calling back to this text, expecting his audience to get it. So we need to spend a little bit of time in Isaiah 5, not much, but just a little bit to get an understanding of what is happening with this vineyard language, okay? So Isaiah, the context of Isaiah, we looked at Isaiah multiple times, and basically the, the, the problems in Israel in Isaiah's day, that's the same kind of trouble in Jesus's day. They're all leaf and no fruit. Uh, there's a lot of out, external profession and work, but no actual love for God or love for neighbor. And so in the midst of all of this, we get Isaiah 5, Isaiah 5, verse 1. Listen to this. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes." And so you see here uh, the similar language that is happening in Matthew 21. Uh, Ma uh, Jesus is calling back to this. There are similarities and there are differences. Uh, but what we, what we see here, at least in Isaiah 5, and it's similar to what happens in um, Matthew 21, is we have a landowner, we have a vineyard owner who takes a great deal of care for his vineyard. He plants it, he prepares the ground, he puts a fence, maybe a stone kind of wall around the vineyard, he puts a watchtower in it. This is like high security maximum protection for this vineyard. And what does he do? He cultivates it, he digs a wine vat so that we've got uh, you know, a wine vat right there to make some good wine after harvesting these grapes. Uh, but the problem is he's looking for it to yield good grapes and it yields wild grapes. That's bad, right? And, uh, but then what's, what's this imagery all about? Well, we keep reading in Isaiah 5, Isaiah 5, verse 3. And now inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. So this is God talking here. This is God talking here. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I look for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? I've done all that I could have for this vineyard, and yet it's not yielding good fruit. And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will command the clouds that, it, that they rain no rain upon it. Catch this, verse 7. For the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So what is going on in Isaiah 5? Uh, God is saying, look, Israel, you're like a vineyard. I took great care of you. I took great pains with you to protect you, to cultivate you. What was I looking for? I was looking for good fruit. What kind of good fruit? Well, he says there at the end of verse 7, I'm looking for justice. I'm looking for righteousness. In other words, I'm looking for people to live just lives, righteous lives, 
But what does he get instead? He gets bad fruit. He gets bloodshed and an outcry. And that's the situation in Isaiah 5. So when we go back to Matthew 21, when we go back to Matthew 21, and Jesus uses this language, he says, there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. There are similarities and differences, but we are meant to call back our minds to Isaiah 5. In other words, we already have an, an advantage in interpreting this parable. First, what does the vineyard represent? At least what's our preloaded expectation of what the vineyard represents in Matthew 21? The nation of Israel. Who's the master or the, uh, of the house? Who's the landowner? It's God. And yet you will notice some key differences. In Isaiah 5, the master stays there and he's cultivating and tending to this vineyard. But after the initial preparation language in Matthew 21, what, is, what happens? The master goes away. The master goes away. And in so doing, he leases it to tenants, tenant farmers, tenant farmers. Now, this was a normal practice in first century Israel, first century Palestine. You would have maybe a wealthy landowner. He would put in the capital improvements, get the vineyard up and running. And then there would be a lease agreement uh, with some tenant farmers to say, all right, you can manage the vineyard. Here are the stipulations. But and when harvest time comes, you're going to give me a share of the crop. You're going to give me a share of the crop. So this is what happens, a normal practice in Jesus' day. Slightly, there are similarities and differences with Isaiah 5. Okay, so we get the imagery, we get the picture. This landowner is taking great care with this vineyard, and now he's leased it out. What's going to happen? Verse 34. When the season for fruit drew near. Okay, so now the harvest time has come. The lease agreement's going to kick in. They're going to harvest. They're going to bring, they ought to bring, the tenants ought to bring the fruit of this vineyard, or at least sell the fruit and bring the proceeds to the master. What does the master do? Uh, he sends, uh, the landowner sends his servants, his slaves, to the tenants to get his fruit. So this is part of the lease agreement. The master is off somewhere. He's off uh, at some distance, uh, the landowner is, and he sends some representatives. He sends some agents, and uh, he tells them, all right, go ahead and collect what we have agreed upon with these tenants. Verse 35, and the tenants, tenant farmers, took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. So the picture is the master, the landowner, at least sent three slaves to go and collect what is rightfully his from these tenants. And what they do is shocking. They receive these slaves from the landowner. They know who they're from. They know who these agents are from. And on one hand, they beat one, but then they kill, and at least stoning would normally leave you dead. So at least they kill one, probably two, of these slaves. And so that, that is shameful behavior in that society, because when you send a messenger, when you send a slave as your agent, how you treat the agent, how you treat the slave, is how you would treat the master, the landowner, if he was there. So what we see with this behavior is that these tenant farmers, they despise they despise the master. They despise the landowner. And now you might think, and this actually we have recorded examples of these sorts of lease agreements and what happens when people renege on them. The master, the landowner, has the right to call in essentially the military to help him reclaim what is rightfully his. Well, okay, these guys, they're now squatting on the vineyard. They want to uh, hold on to it. 
So we got to call in the military to retake it so that the master gets what is rightfully his. And you would think that's the next logical step. These guys are uh, 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 wicked. But notice what he does, verse 36. This is actually surprising. Again, he sent other servants, more other slaves, more than the first. Now that's surprising, right? Why don't you just cut to the chase and send in the military and take back what's rights for you? They've already broken the contract. Why are you sending in more slaves? At the very least, we can say in a positive light that this, this landowner is very patient, but it almost looks foolish. Like, why are you sending more? That's just sending good uh, people after bad, right? We, what, what, look at what happened the first time, but, and it happens again. Again, he sent other slaves more than the first, and they did the same to them. And so now you really think, all right, well, that's, very, that's clear as clear as clear could be. Let's call up the military. Let's go ahead and take back the vineyard so at least I can regain my capital. I can regain my property. I can regain my, whatever amount of the harvest is left. That's what the next logical step would be, but he doesn't. What's his next step? Verse 37. Finally, or last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. Now, on one level, that's true. Uh, The son has a higher social rank than slaves, and so he commands, the son commands greater respect, or should command greater respect in that culture and in that time. So at least there's some hope there might be respect, but at the same time, this still looks kind of foolish, kind of surprising. Why why would he expect a different result? Well, the only hope is that the son commands greater respect, so maybe they'll see him and say, all right, this guy means business, we'll back down. So what happens? Verse 38. But when the tenants saw the son, so we're kind of to imagine here that Uh, The tenant farmers, maybe they're standing outside the wall of the vineyard, and they see on the horizon, they see this figure coming. And then uh, at a certain distance, they recognize, you know who that is? That's, That's the landowner's son. That's the landowner's son. They recognize him. And then they huddle up. They huddle up. They're going to say amongst themselves, what are they going to say? This is the heir. Now, the proper response would have been what? This is the heir. The landowner means business. We should back down, and we should pay this guy what we owe him and his fruits. But what do they do? This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and have his inheritance. Now, let's think about their response a little bit. This is a short-sighted response. Um, what's their logic? What's their thinking? This is the heir. Well, if he's the heir, he's the heir to the vineyard. This is the guy when the father dies, when the, the master dies, when the landowner dies, uh, we, um, this is the only one who's going to take the vineyard. This is the last agent that the father sent. He sent these slaves, but now he sent the one that's the heir. Well, if we take out the heir and the father has no heir, then we, we, the vineyard could be ours. Or another way to look at it, they've held off all of the agents of the landowner thus far, 
And so now he's sending a greater and more intimate representative, and they can think, well, we'll just kill him, and then it's done. We can hold off anything else that the, the landowner could send at us, and we can just squat on this thing and take it. Their motivation here, this is the first time they actually speak in the parable, and here's where we see their motivation. They don't want to be tenants. They don't want to be stewards. They want to be in control. They want to own the vineyard. And so they're squatters, right? They're squatting on this land, trying to just take it for themselves. So this is their reasoning. Now, there's no legal precedent. It's not like if they kill the son, it's automatically yours. It's not legal, but they just think, all right, we can hold off any other agents of the father. It can be ours. We want to be owners. So we see this in verse 39. And they took him, the son, and threw him out of the vineyard, so maybe it's like they, yeah, come on, come on in, come, come see the vineyard. And then they seize him, and they actually throw him out of the vineyard, and they kill him. They do what they, they operate according to their logic, and they kill him. Now, they think, the tenants think, it's all good. At this point, uh, we have control. We can hold off anything else. But Jesus has a different idea. Look at verse 40. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes. The word there for owner is the word kurios. It means Lord, Master, Sir. We've seen it multiple times in Matthew. Depending on the context, it means different things. But here it's the idea of the Master, the Lord of the vineyard. And here we see uh, they miscalculated because um, even though the landowner, the Master, has sent his slaves and even his son the master himself can come. And Jesus expects that in verse 40. So he sets up the scenario. Okay, the, the owner, the master of the vineyard is going to come. He's going to visit. And here's where he, he involves his audience, kind of like he did in the last parable. When the owner, therefore the owner, the master of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Okay, so now he kicks it back to the audience. Who is Jesus' primary audience? His primary audience is the chief priests and the elders of the people. The secondary audience that's overhearing all of this is the crowds, the crowds of the people in Jerusalem. But we are to understand in verse 41 that it's the chief priests and the elders of the people who give him their answer. That's who he's been most directly talking with. They said to him, he, the owner of the vineyard, the master of the vineyard, will put those wretches to a miserable death. The NASB and the NIV actually do a really good job here. They say he'll put those wretches to a wretched end. And that's the idea that now the father, now the, the landowner, the vineyard owner, the master is going to come and he's going to repay the tenants in kind. They've been destructive in a wicked way towards his agents and towards his son and now they're going to be repaid in kind. He's going to put the wretches to a wretched end. He's going to destroy them. But that's not all. The chief priests and the elders of the people say this. Well, he's going to destroy them, but that's not it. He's going to let out, rent, lease, the vineyard to other tenants, other tenant farmers, who will give him the fruits in their seasons. That makes sense, right? You are the landowner. You own this vineyard. You put a lot of capital into this thing. 
um, and you want it to succeed. So what are you going to do? Well, you're going to wipe out the current tenants, the bad tenants, the evil tenants, and you're going to get in some new tenants. You're going to get in some new tenants who do what? Who give him the fruits in their seasons, plural. Notice the anticipation here is you're going to find other tenants who are going to give season after season, time after time, the fruits of this vineyard. Now, that is what the... Notice Jesus doesn't say this, at least as it's recorded in Matthew. It's the chief priests and the elders of the people. They say this is the logical conclusion. And they're right. Uh, I know uh, Jesus endorses this. He's going to effectively say as much in verse 43. He endorses this conclusion. And we can also turn to the other gospels like Mark and Luke and look at parallel accounts. And we can see that verse 41 is endorsed, the the, the conclusion is endorsed uh, by Jesus himself. So that is the right answer. That is the right answer. The master's going to come. He's going to put those wretches to a wretched end, destroy them wretchedly, badly, because they're bad men. And he's going to turn the vineyard over to other tenants, lace it out, who will give him his fruits in their season. That is correct. But what's interesting is how Jesus responds. Jesus doesn't say yay or nay. And in fact, he seems to take the conversation sideways, which is interesting. Now, we will see, as I said, that in verse 43, Jesus clearly endorses what is said in verse 41, but it's not, uh, it doesn't go far enough. It doesn't go far enough, and so Jesus interjects something else in verse 42. Verse 42. And once we get, uh, you're like, well, how, what does this all represent? We're going to tie it together in verse 43. It's going to be There are several threads that we're going to try to pull together here, but let's hear what Jesus has to say in verse 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? I always love it when Jesus says that. He's talking to the the experts. These are the guys that should know the scriptures, that should be able to, uh, uh, yeah, they've read them. But what is Jesus saying? He's saying, you've missed this. You've read it, but you've missed this. And what does Jesus say? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So Jesus is citing scripture here. What is he citing? He's citing Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. Now, what's interesting about that is Psalm 118, this isn't the first time Psalm 118 has been cited in the last couple chapters. You remember when Jesus is riding in on Jerusalem on his donkeys, uh, his donkeys, and the, um, what happens with the crowds, the Galilean crowds? They say, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Only a couple verses later than what Jesus cites here. And he's not done citing Psalm 118, because at the end of Matthew 23, after he rails against the, the uh, chief priests and the, the, the leaders, the Pharisees, he, uh, he cites it again. So Psalm 118 is very important to Jesus, and it's very important to these chapters. And he cites Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. Now, we've said this multiple times in Matthew. Whenever the New Testament cites the Old Testament, it uses it contextually. Therefore, you have to understand what is going on in Psalm 118 to understand how Jesus is citing it. So let me give you the brief overview. Psalm 118, if you were to read it, you can read it later today or later this week. The first part of the psalm is a person is talking who is, uh, he, he is challenged by the nations and he defeats the nations. 
he is challenged by outside forces, and he is victorious. And we're to understand in the greater context of Psalm 118 and the Psalms surrounding it, this is the Messiah. This is the son of David talking. So you've got the the Davidic king in Psalm 118 talking about how he was opposed, but he was victorious. And then what happens later on in the psalm uh, is that Israel starts talking. Israel starts talking and says, yes, uh, the the Davidic king won. uh, Let's celebrate. Let's go to the temple and let's celebrate. And that's uh, that's, that's the section that Jesus is quoting from. So what is happening here in Psalm 118, uh, the, the, the portion of Psalm 118 that Jesus is quoting, this is Israel saying this in celebration. And what Israel is saying in celebration is that the stone, and in the context of Psalm 118, that's to be identified with this individual that was threatened uh, and that looked like a, a, a defeat was near and yet he succeeded. That individual, the Davidic king, is identified with this stone. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, what is this building project that's happening? Well, in the context of Psalm 118, in the uh, the Psalms around it, it is the temple. It is the temple. Remember, the Davidic king, uh, one of his jobs, the ultimate Davidic king, one of his jobs is to build the temple. But what we see here is, here we've got a stone, this Davidic king... Uh, that the builders, like these people that are normally in charge of the temple and building the temple, uh, they look at this stone, they look at this individual, and they reject the individual. And then that stone that has been rejected has a complete 180-degree reversal and actually becomes the most important piece of the structure of the temple, the cornerstone. And Israel is singing this. They're celebrating and what do they say? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our, eye, in our eyes. In other words, these builders, these leaders, are opposing this stone, but then all of a sudden there's this reversal where the stone becomes a cornerstone, and ultimately that comes from God, and it's a marvelous turn of events. Now, you should be asking yourself the question, why in the world is Jesus citing this? Like, why, why is he talking about vineyards and fruits and tenants and... All of a sudden, now he's talking about stones and this temple thing and what's going on. Well, Jesus himself is going to give us, he's going to wrap everything up in verse 43. It's the mic drop moment. On account of this, verse 43, notice that conjunction. Conjunctions are very important in the scriptures. On account of this, because of this, because of what? Because of what Jesus just cited in Psalm 118, Because of that reality of what is said in Psalm 118, I am saying to you, now who is he talking to? He's talking to the chief priests and the elders of the people most directly, and then by extension, the crowds, the Jerusalem crowds that are overhearing him that have been there when he was teaching them. They're overhearing this whole exchange. So on account of what is said in Psalm 118, uh, I am saying to you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and it will be given to a people or a nation producing its fruits. Now, that little, what Jesus says in 43 ties everything together. We know that parables are essentially, they're they're 
They, they have a description of everyday realities, but they represent uh, a spiritual uh, uh, concept, something else that is being referred to here. So what is Jesus talking about? Well, let's go down the line. First, we understand from Isaiah 5 that the vineyard represents Israel. However, what does Jesus say in verse 43? The kingdom of God is going to be taken away from you. From you, chief priests and elders of the people. Um, and so we also understand, we've got this tension here where the vineyard represents Israel, but it also represents the kingdom of God. Now there's a tension there because those are not the same thing. Israel does not equate to the kingdom of God. Everything we have seen, everything in the Old Testament and in Matthew, uh, the kingdom of God is God's kingdom plan. From Genesis to Revelation, the plan has been for God to rule over earth through a human king. It started with Adam. Adam failed. And then his plan is from there on out, we're going to reestablish this kingdom program through the proper uh, human king. And that king is going to rule over all the nations, the whole world. And so even as you uh, march through the uh, the, the Old Testament, even in Genesis 12, when God is promising to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation, such that what? All the clans of the ground shall be blessed. It's always been a plan for the nations. And so you fast forward to the Exodus, and God says at Mount Sinai to Israel after they've come out, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So what is God saying? He's saying, I'm planting my kingdom flag in Israel. Israel is not the kingdom but I'm planting my flag here like an embassy. So if you go to Switzerland and you go to the U.S. embassy, is the embassy the whole of the United States? No, but it is the representative of the United States. Similarly, Israel is not the kingdom, but it is the beachhead kingdom through which God is going to reestablish his kingdom over the whole world. And so we go forward to the Davidic kingship and God has promised to the Davidic king, you're going to rule over Israel, but you're going to rule over the whole world. And so what is happening here as we get to this portion, and Jesus came, right? Jesus and John came saying, the kingdom of the heavens has drawn near, repent. But that wicked generation did not repent, so the kingdom didn't come in its fullness. And so what is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about the manifestation, the earthly manifestation of the kingdom of God, the embassy kingdom, which Israel had stewardship of, and he's saying, it's going to be taken away. So in the Old Testament, you want to go to the kingdom, you want to see what God is doing on earth, you go to Israel. But now he's saying, I'm taking my flag away. I planted my kingdom flag in Israel with the temple where heaven meets earth. It wasn't the fullness of the kingdom. The full kingdom hasn't yet come. But it was a representative. It was a physical manifestation of that. And now God's saying, I'm taking it away. I'm taking away the temple. I'm taking away my kingdom flag, and I'm giving it to other stewards. And that helps us, right? We understand, okay, well, the vineyard represents Israel, and it represents the kingdom of God, but who are the tenant farmers? The tenant farmers are the same as the builders in Psalm 118. So we've got the tenant farmers, we've got the builders. Who are they? Chief priests and elders of the people. But not just this generation of the chief priests and the elders of the people, but all prior, many prior generations of the leadership of Israel. Because notice what happened in the parable. The master sent wave after wave of slaves, of agents. Those are the prophets. Those are guys like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, 
Zechariah, Malachi, and then John the Baptist, coming to Israel saying, look, you're not bearing fruit. You need to. You need to repent, and you need to, um, you need to entrust yourself totally to God and his plan through Messiah so that you can be a fruitful people. But it never happened. And so what is happening? The tenant farmers represent the builders. Those are the same people, which are the chief priests and elders of the people who are the current stewards of the kingdom of God located in Israel. And then who's he going to give it to? He's going to give it to an ethnos. That's the Greek word here. Now, I don't pull out the Greek words very often, but this one you need to know a little bit about because it's so important. This little word is really where the bulk of this text places its weight. Who is the ethnos? Ethnos, as a word, means, generally speaking, uh, a political people, a political group, like an ethnic group, or a nation. So you look at, and I scan through all of the uses of a singular, this is a singular use. Uh, uh, Matthew often talks about nations, right? Uh, the nations, like all the nations of the world, this is a singular use. And when you look at the singular uses, Old Testament, New Testament, it always represents an ethnic group, a political people. Who is it? Who is it? Well, this is where Psalm 118 helps us. Because what happens in Psalm 118? The rejected stone, which equates to the rejected son in the parable, he's rejected, he's rejected, but then what happens? In the parable, he just dies. We don't hear anything else, right? He's just rejected. But in Psalm 118, and this is where Jesus adds some info, the rejected son is not done. The rejected son is actually going to form the basis for a new temple. And since he's a person, the stone is a person, it's going to form a new people, a new temple people. Now, as soon as we hear that, Matthew has actually been talking a lot about this reality already, hasn't he? Back in Matthew 16, right after Peter confessed Jesus to be the Christ, uh, what, what did P uh, Jesus say to Peter? You are a stone, and on this rock I will build my assembly. My assembly, not the Old Testament assembly, but my assembly, the assembly of Messiah, the new covenant assembly. And so pulling this together, what is Jesus talking about? He's talking about, I'm taking the flag away from Israel as a generation, this wicked generation of Israel. He's not talking about Israel as a whole. He's talking about this generation of Israel. I'm taking it away and I'm giving it to my people. I'm giving it to the new covenant assembly, temple assembly that Jesus has been talking about since Matthew 16. He's talking about the church. He's talking about the church. The stewardship of that generation of Israel is over and he's going to pass it on. Now, don't mishear what I am saying. I am not saying that God is done with Israel and only working with Gentiles. That's not what this text says. Because you look at the Old Testament promises, you look at Jeremiah, and you say, uh, may the heavens and the earth never go away if Israel was good, would cease to be a nation before me. I'm not saying that God is done with Israel. I'm not saying that Israel is being replaced, fulfilled, or anything by the church. But what I am saying is that 
there will be a future generation of Israel where the promises will be fulfilled, but it's not this generation. This generation is wicked and adulterous, and Jesus and the Father are done. And they are passing on stewardship to the new covenant assembly of Jesus' people, which are going to come from Jews and Gentiles. They're going to form a people. A people connected how? From all tribes, tongues, and nations, connected how? Connected through the cornerstone. That's what a cornerstone does. It locks in and sets the trajectory for the whole structure. This people is going to be defined by their surrender, their discipleship, their trust in Jesus Christ. And so God will fulfill all his promises and plans for Israel, but only once they come into the church as a nation. That generation, that wicked and adulterous generation will not, but a future generation of Israel will, fulfilling all promises to them. And you're like, really? That's what's going on here? Yeah, because this has actually been talked about before in the Old Testament. Go to Deuteronomy 32, way back. Way back, right as Israel is about to enter the promised land. Deuteronomy 32 is very interesting. Deuteronomy 32 is a song. And it's a song that Moses is supposed to teach Israel to say, when you guys are rebellious in the future, you're going to remember this song and you're going to know how rebellious you are. (laughs) That's effectively how Deuteronomy 32 works. But what's amazing about Deuteronomy 32 is it essentially outlines the history of Israel, the future history of Israel. And what you find in Deuteronomy 32 is that God blesses Israel, but then they're rebellious. And then God has to take very drastic measures with Israel. And by the end of the Psalm, Israel is restored. That's the broad arc of Deuteronomy 32. So if we drop down into verse 21, I draw your attention to this. As part of that whole arc, God's saying, yeah, Israel's going to be really bad and really rebellious, but I'm not, going to, I'm not through with them. I'm going to, I'm going to deal with them, and it's going to be, it's going to be uh, it's, it's severe, but they're ultimately not done. Look at verse 21 as part of this. It has bearing on our text. So this is God speaking, and he says this. They, Israel, have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. Okay, so what is God going to do about it? So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. And that word there for nation, at least in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is ethnos, the same word that Jesus is using. In fact, Paul uh, reflects on this very text in Romans 10, 19, when he's talking about what's the future of Israel? What's going to happen? And he looks back to Deuteronomy 32, and, he, uh, and he's reflecting on what's going on with the church and the Gentiles and all of it. And he says, well, what's going on now? This is, I'm obviously paraphrasing, but what Paul is effectively saying is, well, what's going on now is there's a primarily Gentile church, but God's not done with Israel. And in fact, what God is doing is he's using a primarily Gentile church to provoke Israel to jealousy so that they repent. And that's exactly what Jesus is intersecting with in Matthew 21. He's saying, the stewardship of this generation and with Israel is over. We're going to plant that in the new covenant assembly of Messiah, the church. But in such a way that Israel is going to be provoked and a future generation of Israel will repent and come into the church and all promises to Israel will be fulfilled. Now, why does it matter? (laughs) 
Why does it matter? Why is Jesus doing this? Why is he saying this? Well, who's he talking to? He's talking to the chief priests, the elders of the people, and by extension, the crowds that are standing by. And he's saying, Jesus is announcing judgment and transfer. Judgment and transfer. Remember what happens in the parable of the vineyard. The son dies, and then what happens? The master comes. The master in the parable is represented by the father, and the father comes in judgment. And that's exactly what happened in AD 70. God visited his people in judgment. He destroyed the nation. He destroyed the temple because of this, because they rejected the son. And the son became the chief cornerstone of the new temple assembly, the church. Why does Matthew's audience need to hear this? Remember what we said, they're Jewish Christians, and what's happening? They're, they're fairly early on in the developments here. They're probably, they're, I believe they're pre-AD 70, but as time goes on, they're going to have to choose. They're going to have to choose between Israel's leadership and the temple, or they're going to have to choose between Jesus' leadership and the leadership of the apostles and Jesus' temple assembly. That's the choice. So why did they need to hear this? They need to hear their king saying, the stewardship of Israel is over for the time being. It is now resting with the church, and that helps them make that decision. It's for a Jewish Christian to say, I side with the church over against an apostate Israel. Can you imagine how hard that would be? All your friends, your neighbors, everything you've grown up with, this is where God is working. This is where God has been working for uh, centuries, and now it's transferred to this new thing. But because Jesus is the Messiah, because he really is the king, and because he really said this to the leadership, it now becomes clear. All right, that's the choice. Am I going to make it? And that's the choice for us as well. You see, even though we are Gentiles, and probably predominantly here, some of us may have some Jewish heritage in our backgrounds, the kingdom of God, the fullness of the kingdom of God has not been seen yet. The church is not equal to the kingdom of God, because we've seen that in Matthew. The kingdom is always future, in its fullness, in its grandeur, where the Messiah is reigning over Israel and over the whole world, that's future, and it's still future. But, just like Israel, he has an embassy actually has multiple embassies, and it's called the church, and it's called local churches. We see this in Revelations 2 through 3. I've quoted that text multiple times. Jesus envisions the temple lampstands as individual churches. The kingdom of God is manifested visibly here and now through local churches. You want to see where God is working in the world? You go to your local church. True and sound local churches. And following Jesus means that you are to identify with his people, the church. The choice for the Jewish um, Christians, for Matthew's audience, is the same for us and for every Christian. You can't be a solo Christian. Or you can try, but you're going to wither and die. Because that's not Jesus' design. That's not his design. That's not his desire. He is, he is glorified in the coming together of his people in an embassy what is known as the local church. So the choice is the same. Are you going to side with your other commitments, your other 
pulls on your time, your relationships, your identities, your allegiances? Or are you going to, because you bow the knee to Jesus Christ, are you going to identify with his people, the church? Are you willing to say to the local church, this is my people? As a member of Faith Bible Church, that is what I say to every other member in this room. You are my people. Despite all of the faults and foibles and failure that we all have, the thing that joins us together is that we follow Jesus, and together we're going to work together to form an embassy of the kingdom of God. That is glorious work. And so why will you not identify and say, this is my people? This is why we value membership so highly here. Because membership is saying, I'm with Jesus and I'm with his people. And I need his people to work together to be an embassy to manifest the kingdom of God and the culture of the kingdom of the world so that he be glorified. I need this people to hold me accountable. This is why we hold membership highly. Because we are identifying with Jesus. We are identifying with his people in the local church to form an embassy together of the future kingdom. And what do we do? What's our mission? Well, the parable makes that clear as well. What is the tenancy for? What is the stewardship for? A people producing its fruits. And what in the context of Matthew is fruit? It is people who walk righteously. It is people who do the will of the Father, not because they have the willpower in and of themselves to do that, but because they love Jesus Christ and they are empowered by the Holy Spirit, whom the Messiah will baptize uh, the, uh, the Christian with, empowering them to live righteous lives. That's what we aim at. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 28, make disciples, make a follower and learner of Jesus Christ, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The fruit we bear is, yes, conversion, and then a fruitful life. Righteous living, because that righteous living doesn't glorify us. It glorifies the Messiah who has changed us and the Spirit who has changed us to live righteously. You've got to feel the weight of that. You know, in our culture, in our time, I talk so much about this because it's so bad. <laughs> We look at mainstream Christian culture, and it dis Christians despise the church. And you're like, you can't despise what Jesus has bought. You can't despise his embassy. You can't despise where the kingdom of God is working. I'm not excusing the abuses and the failures of the church, not by any means, but that doesn't—Jesus is not done. He works through a redeemed but sinful people, and you need to realize how much Jesus loves the church— how central it is to his program and plan. How important what is happening right here, right now, the local church is. Jesus said in Matthew 18, I'm putting my name, I'm putting my name on this gathered assembly. That is significant. So what we've seen in verses 33 through 43, the father has transferred stewardship of his kingdom to the son's new covenant temple assembly. But... It's a little bit more. Verses 45 and 46, there's the response. And really what we see in this response from the leadership of Israel is this. Seeking control rather than stewardship will result in fulfilling your own judgment. 
look at verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees, and you're like, wait, 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 I thought he was just talking to the chief priests and the elders of the people. Why do you swap out for Pharisees? Well, there's probably a great deal of overlap between those two groups. He's talking about the leadership, same group of people. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, notice the plural there, parables. So they heard the parable of the, uh, the, the owner sending out his two sons into the vineyard or trying to. They've heard the parable of the vineyard itself, the wicked tenants. They've heard it. Notice what happens. This is amazing. They perceive that he was speaking about them. Now, on one level, that shouldn't be too surprising because basically Jesus says, uh, the kingdom of God is being taken away from you um, and things like that. But still, they know what he's talking about. They acknowledge what he's talking about. Now, they don't believe it, because notice what they do. Verse 46, and although they were seeking to arrest him, what are they doing? They're those tenants in the vineyard, and they're seeking to seize the son. And that's what's going to happen. They're going to seize the son and throw him out of the vineyard and kill him. They're going to crucify him. Jesus knew this. He predicted it uh, multiple times. Uh, most recently uh, in Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19, he predicted they're going to, the chief priests are going to, and the scribes, they're going to grab hold of me. They're going to seize me. They're going to crucify me. And I'm going to be raised again. It's a marvelous thing because now in the resurrection, Jesus is going to be the cornerstone. But notice what's happening here. They're so committed that they're going to fulfill their own doom. Why? What's the motivation? Well, Jesus exposed the motivation in the parable. They want control. They don't want to just be stewards over God's people. They want to own them. Which is ironic because notice what happens. They're, still, they're, they're, they're going to fulfill their own destruction. But notice this. A seeking to, although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds. Remember what we said? What your authority is... What your ultimate authority is, where you get your power, your satisfaction from, that's the thing you fear most. And so we see it played out. We see it played out that their power base, their basis for control and worth is the people, controlling the people, having dominance over the people, not as stewards, but as owners. But they feared them, and so that's the only thing that restrains them and because the crowds hold him to be a prophet, which is true, but doesn't go far enough. Yes, Jesus is a prophet, but he speaks for God, but he is God, the Son incarnate. He is the true king. So what's the, the application there for us? Here's the question. Do you view yourself in a position of control or of stewardship? You know, humans are not designed to have control over their own lives. We're not designed to have control over our lives. Rather, our lives are to be lived as a stewardship for God. How do I know that? Well, Genesis 1, 26 or 28, which sets the fundamental design for humanity. God gives rule to men and women working together to image God, to bring glory to him. But that is a stewardship rule. It is a stewardship rule. It is not an ownership rule. In fact, the first sin was all about you seeking to usurp and change from being steward rulers to being owning rulers. And so we all start out, after Adam and Eve, we all start out as rebels. We all start out as thinking we're in control. 
And as long as we live as if we are in control and can be our own gods and live our own lives and be our own kings, we are fulfilling our own destruction. Because notice what happened in the parable. The vineyard and the fruits belong to the Father, and he will own the vineyard, and he will have his fruits. God is not mocked. And so if, as long as we live as if we control our lives, we're seeking to steal those fruits. We're seeking to steal God's glory. We're seeking to steal our own lives away from the Father, and he will not be mocked. He will deal with us severely with eternal hell if we will not bow the knee to who? To the cornerstone. To Jesus who bore in his death even as the nations and Israel rejected this stone and he was crucified, God was working through that. He bore the sins of his people, his ethnos, on the cross such that they could be redeemed from slavery to sin and self and could be reclaimed as stewards. And that's what his death and resurrection does. That's what repentance and faith does. Jesus not only pays for your sin and lives the righteous life in your place and so that you stand righteously before the Father, but he sets you on mission. He gives you a job as a steward. He reclaims your fundamental humanity, not as a ruler, as an owner, but as a ruler, as a steward. And then the question is, if you are in Christ, if you have indeed repented and placed your faith in Christ, how are you stewarding your gifts and life for the glory of God and the good of the local church. That's what a Christian is supposed to do, to identify with the people of God and then use the gifts for the good of the local church, not to puff ourselves up, but for the glory of the king. What does that look like? Bearing fruits and stewarding your gifts. It means service. It means going to discipleship groups to pour into others, to pray for each other. It looks like doing practical projects around the church. Uh, it looks like doing projects for other members in the church. It looks like uh, doing a music ministry in the church. It looks like any number of things. It looks like visiting uh, shut-ins in the church. It looks like speaking the truth to one another in love in the church. It looks like giving. It looks like evangelizing. It looks like discipling. And it also looks like doing your job in the workplace. Your vocation is a stewardship for the glory of God. That is how you bear fruit. Everything is ministry if you understand that you belong to Jesus the King first and foremost. You identify with his people. You work together with his people. You serve with his people for the good of one another and for the glory of Christ. There's a particular application here to leaders. Notice whom is primarily being addressed here in the text is the leadership of Israel. The problem with leadership uh, is that we are fallen leaders. And so what happens is leaders begin to think of themselves as owners and not as stewards. Leaders, we must beware. We can slip into thinking that we own when we are only stewards. That holds true for the elders of Faith Bible Church. We are not owners of the church. Jesus alone is owners of the church. We are simply here as under-shepherds, stewards, to seek to cultivate a people. But it's also true in the home. Husbands, you do not own your wives. You are stewards of your wives for their good, to build them up in the Lord. Fathers and mothers, you don't own your kids. You have your kids as a stewardship to build them up in the Lord for the glory of Christ. We are stewards. We are not owners. 
So what's it all, in the end, what's our main idea? Partner with the church as the people who have current stewardship of God's kingdom. Partner, because this is where God is working through a redeemed people, through a sinful people, a foibling people, but the people whom the Son has loved as his people and redeemed on the cross. Let us pray. Jesus in heaven at the right hand of the Father, we are assembled and we bear your name as a local temple, as a local assembly. You have poured out your spirit in the midst of this people, and you are working in this people. And Lord, I praise you for the ways we see it and change lives, the lives that you are changing, people that you are changing. Lord, help us to work together to partner as stewards of the gifts and the life that you have given us. Oh, Lord, and may we bear fruit, not to boast in ourselves, but mainly, truly, because we want to see your name glorified. We want to honor you. So give us grace to bear fruit. Help us to preach the gospel. Help conversions to happen. Help us to then disciple and teach people to obey your commands and help us to live righteous lives, obedient lives fruitful lives for the sake of your name. We ask these things. We know we can only do it through the empowerment of your spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.